Chapter Four of An Angler's Hours by Hugh Tempest Sheringham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four: A Brace of Tench. The cooing of doves, the hum of bees, and all the pageantry of high summer seem somehow to be recalled by the word tench. Perhaps it is that this fish invites meditation. During the hours, or maybe days, that he has to wait for a bite, even the most unobservant angler can hardly fail to take note of his surroundings. And so the doves and the bees gradually compel a drowsy recognition. The wonderful lights and shades of a July noon first catch and then arrest the eye. A discovery is made that the sky glows with the blue of the south, and that the water is a marvellous and transparent brown. Moreover, the insect world moves to and fro, a constant procession of unending activity, and yonder emerald dragonfly is hovering above the crimson cork that marks the whereabouts of the angler's neglected worm. A cork float with crimson tip is very necessary to proper angling for tench. It supplies the one touch of colour that is wanting in the landscape, and it is a satisfying thing to look upon. A severely practical mind might argue that it is as visible to the fish as to the fisherman, and might suggest a fragment of porcupine quill as being less ostentatious. But, however one regards it, tench-fishing is a lengthy operation, and must be approached with leisurely mind. The sordid yearning for bites should not be put in the balance against artistic effect. Besides, it may be said of tench more emphatically than of most other fish, if they are going to feed, they are, and if they are not, they most certainly are not. As a rule, they are not, and their feelings are therefore not so important as the anglers. In this canal, at any rate, their feelings receive but the scantest consideration. Evening by evening the villagers come forth, each armed with a bean-pole, to which are attached a stout window-cord, the bung of a beer-cask, and a huge hook on the stoutest gimp. A lobworm is affixed to the hook, and flung with much force and splashing into some little opening among the weeds, where it remains until night draws down her veil. The villagers sit in a contemplative row under this ancient grey wall, which once enclosed a grange, fortressed against unquiet times. But now all is peace, and the cooing of doves in the garden trees has replaced the clash of arms. About once a week the villagers have a bite. A bean-pole is lifted by stalwart arms, and a two-pound tench is summarily brought to bank. But for the most part, evening's solemn stillness is undisturbed by rude conflict. This is not surprising. Apart from the uncompromising nature of the tackle, there are other reasons against success. The canal is here one solid mass of weed. No barge has passed this way for years, and so there is no object in keeping the channel clear in the summer. If the angler wishes to fish, he must make a clear space for himself with the end of his bean-pole. 
Hence it comes that the villagers angle in two feet of water, not more than six feet away from the bank, while the tench live secure out of reach. The angler from foreign parts, all parts beyond the market town are foreign here, has realised these things, and has endeavoured to strike out a new line for himself. A punt and a long-handled rake were borrowed a day or two ago, and a round pool was cleared among the weed some twelve yards from the bank, where the water was a good five feet in depth. Further, a narrow channel was cleared between this pool and the bank. Then, ground-bait, in the shape of innumerable fragments of lobworm, was thrown in, and the tench were left to recover from their surprise, and to find out what a blessing it is to have plenty of good food with plenty of room to eat it in. The clock on the old tower is just striking four in the grey dawn, when he comes to prove the value of his theories. There is no row of villagers here now. Indeed, the world is only just awake, and the earliest of them is hardly rubbing the sleep from his eyes. This is no cause for regret. Solitude and tench-fishing should be synonymous. Though summer is at its hottest, it is now none too warm, and the dew hangs heavy on the long grass that fringes the canal. But it is just in this cool morning hour, this period of refreshment, that the tench are apt to be on the feed. The angler is equipped with a rod of twenty feet, made of East India cane. It is heavier than a roach-pole, but it is also much stronger, and was primarily designed for bream-fishing in a very deep river. A light but strong silk running line, and a cast of undrawn gut, with one small bullet to cock the float, and a number seven hook complete the outfit. The little pool that was cleared yesterday stands out in marked contrast to the weedy surface round it, and it is plainly beyond the reach of any bean-pole. With this long rod, however, the bait can be swung out easily enough, and a small lobworm is soon lying on the bottom of the canal, ready for the first fish. It is well in tench-fishing to have eighteen inches of gut below the bullet, and to plumb the depth so that the bullet itself just touches the bottom. When the float is nicely cocked in the middle of the pool, the angler rests his rod on its pegs, throws a few fragments of worm in round the float, and then takes his seat on the camp-stool that he has brought, and composes himself to wait. Tench are not quite so difficult to entice as carp, but where they run big they are not to be hurried. In this canal they run very big. Three pounders are occasionally caught by the villagers, and much heavier ones are often seen. And it is those bigger ones that the angler desires. So he is content to wait until breakfast time, if need be. It will not be the first occasion. Presently the sun begins to rise away behind the old wall and the grove of chestnut trees, and the morning grey gradually softens, into a kind of luminous opal. Then the angler sees the first sign of fish. A greenish shadow passes close under the bank, almost at his feet. That is a tench of about two pounds, and it seems to have gone out by the artificial channel into the pool. Perhaps it will find and attack the worm waiting there. Anyhow, 
It is a good sign. It shows that the fish are moving. From time to time a kind of plop may be heard in the middle of the weeds, which also indicates that the tench are breakfasting. But for a long time the bait remains untouched. At last, just when the angler is deliberating whether it would not be wise to put on a fresh worm, the float moves a little uneasily. Then there is a pause, and it looks as if the fish has left the bait. But no, the float stirs again, once, twice, and then begins to sail slowly off. The angler picks up his rod without hurry, for it is wise to give a tench plenty of time, and strikes gently. There is no mistake about the fish now, and the rod bends handsomely to the encounter. The tench fights very gamely, and does all it knows to bury itself in the weeds round the little pool. But the tackle is strong, and a little extra strain stops it short of them at each rush. The fish plays deep, and with great power, but there is no mad plunge such as a trout would give, and at length it is drawn through the channel within the reach of the net, and safely landed. It looks very handsome in the morning light, with its armour of tiny scales gleaming in dusky gold, and it weighs a full two and a half pounds. A nice fish, but not one of the big ones, and so the hook is rebated and swung out again without loss of time. Then follows another period of inaction, during which the sun gathers power and height, and gives promise of another piping hot day. About half-past six the float stirs again, and presently glides off as it did before. The angler strikes, and is fast into a second tench. But this time there is no holding the fish, which moves irresistibly across the pool into the weeds opposite. The line is kept tight in the hope of bringing it out again, but it soon becomes apparent either that the tench is curiously inactive, or that in some way understood by the fish, but never intelligible to men, it has transferred the hook from its mouth to the toughest piece of weed it can find, and so it proves. Much pulling in different directions has no result, and at last the hook link breaks. That fish, the angler reflects ruefully as he puts on a new hook, was undoubtedly a four-pounder at the least. The strain he applied must have turned anything smaller, and it is doubtful whether another big one will bite, for the sun is now on the water. However, there is still an hour and a half before breakfast, so the float and a new hook are swung out once more. Oddly enough, there is a bite at once, and a tench of about the same size as the first is soon in the net, and ultimately in the basket. But this is the end of the morning sport, and for fully an hour the bait lies absolutely unheeded, and at last the angler winds in his line and departs. His bag of fish is not remarkable, and three bites in four hours and a half do not sound exciting, but he has acquired a noble appetite and is by no means dissatisfied. Other mornings there are, and plenty of them, when he will not get a fish at all. And again, 
for such is the glorious uncertainty of Tench, there may come a day when he must get assistance to carry home his catch. End of chapter 4